Hello, this is the 58th edition of WFAE Talks. I'm Greg Collard, News Director at WFAE, and today we have some uh, new faces to, uh, or new voices to WFAE Talks. I've been on here before, and certainly you're familiar with their voices, that uh, Lisa Wharf is out of uh, is out of the office this week, and, let's, and uh, Ben Bradford, unfortunately, is no longer here, so... Some new, some he's, new voices. He's not, he's not dead, though. No, he's not dead. No, exactly. Thank you. But yes, he's uh, in, <laughs> in ben, Sacramento, ben's California. Okay, yes. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but that voice you hear is uh, is Michael Tomzik, and uh, next to him is Duncan McFadden. Hey, Greg. <laughs> so, how, how long? How many times have you been on WF, WFE Talks? I know you both just, said, a, just a couple. I think um, we've done uh, updates on the voting trial with okay. me a couple of times. Then Duncan. I think this is only the second time we've been short-staffed enough that I've gotten pulled into it. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to say that. I, no, that's not true. You, I, I, I wanted you because you're my top choice, Duncan. Okay. <laughs> Can I get that in writing? <laughs> well, you've had a you've had an interesting week. You you've been you know you've been filing stories, doing news newscasts, but then you also uh, did something. A little bit different this week. You were uh, uh, you recorded a show for Charlotte Talks. That's as, right. As Speaking host. of firsts or seconds or what, whatever we're talking about here, the, uh, my first time hosting Charlotte Talks will be Monday, and uh, we recorded a show at Queen's University. The uh, piano that belonged to the late great classical pianist Vladimir Horowitz is in Charlotte for a few weeks, and uh, Queen's is hosting it for some for some recitals. And they were kind enough to let us record a show there. We got together with uh, Chad Lawson, who's a jazz pianist based here in Charlotte. He's got a new album and talked to some of the folks from Steinway and & Sons and, and learned about this crazy 70-year-old piano that's been really all over the world. How long has it been going all over the world? Well, Horowitz passed away in 89, mm-hmm. 1989. Um, I'm not sure how soon after that Steinway, the company who who made it, put it on tour. It, of course, a part of this is marketing for them. Sure. And there's a component with Queens being a Steinway school. They have all Steinway pianos for their students to play on. Okay. Um, the other thing is it's really kind of a special piano. You know, I play a little bit and I, I played it and it, there are some very magical, special things that just sort of start to happen, even with someone who is as out of practice as I am. But what, 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 what stood out to you about this piano? Well, one, one thing that's kind of weird is the keys are very light to the touch, even in the hmm. bass. Sometimes those are fairly heavy. I don't know why that happens in, in pianos, but this is very even all the way across. And so when you play something that has you know a, a long uh, bass line, it starts to sing out a little more than you might necessarily expect because your fingers are expecting to press harder to make the note Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, comes out a little bit more. But it, it it's a beautiful tone piano. It's impeccably well maintained to be more than seventy years old. And yeah, it, it's just a, a special thing that it's it's here. Steinway sends it around the country for mm-hmm. you know for marketing, and um, the Steinway Gallery here is using it to raise money for a, a local charity. And I think that's kind of what they sure. do with it all around the country. Yeah, yeah neat. Yeah, some people might probably, most of our listeners don't know this about you. You actually played the piano for a living for a little bit, right? Well, <laughs> it wasn't my sole form of income. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, after college, I played in um, a, a bar in a hotel lobby in Chapel Hill. Yeah, and just, yeah, played for tips and a little bit of, of uh, hourly wage. And my buddy was the bartender, and we just, we had fun. <laughs> so you could, uh, you, you could take requests. Uh, occasionally, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I know the song, I'll try my best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you know this about him, Mike? No, I didn't know that. Which, <laughs> which, which... It was at the Siena Hotel. Okay. Yeah, 
Yeah. Nice. So Duncan and I are both Carolina grads. So yes. we have that in common. Yeah. A few <laughs> years apart, though. <laughs> a couple. <laughs> well, uh, Michael, um, you had an interesting story this week. I mean, Medicaid is not the sexiest story on earth. Well, let's just get that out of the way. But you do a great job of making it so easy to understand the, nice. the issues in, involved. And there's this big Medicaid overhaul bill in the legislature, and you really broke it down. And I feel like I, yeah, I, often with Medicaid stories, I feel like I understand it, the story when I'm editing it. But yeah, it's easy to forget things. But I actually remember a lot of things out of your story. Because well, <laughs> really you made it, that. you really broke it down about the changes that, that are happening and how uh, they're, they're, the state is going to be going about managing the program. Yeah, and, and and a big part of that, frankly, is, you know, because you and I have been doing this for a couple of years now, because the Republicans in the legislature have been fighting over how to overhaul the program for, it's been more than two years. Mm-hmm. So I think just the more we've done it, the, the you know, kind of each time you get a little bit better at explaining each thing, and, and you've been a huge help, so thank you. Well, well so now we're going to be going to a managed system, hospital systems, basically, and, and insurance companies will be taking over different parts of the program or managing parts of the program. Yeah, and one of the things that we wanted to get across in, in the big story we did about it this week is um, how it's kind of this mixture of models that when you look at what's happening in healthcare in America as a whole, it's these models that a lot of people are moving towards or these models that are starting to gain prominence. Um, one has been around for a while, and its its wonky name is a managed care model, but it's basically you put insurance companies in charge of managing patients, you give them a set budget up front, and if they go over, they're on the hook. If they save money to a certain you know limit, depending on the state, they turn a profit. So states love that idea because it makes their budgeting very predictable. Um, the other piece, though, and, and originally that's just what North Carolina was going to do two years ago when Governor McCrory brought this up. But um, our Medicaid program actually has this parts of it that have won national awards and, and is really good. And it's because it's uh, provider led. It's kind of from the ground up with doctors and hospitals. So uh, a lot of our lawmakers wanted that to be part of our overhaul as well. So they went towards this model that's much newer. And it's called, um, wonky name, Accountable Care Organization, which basically when you hear that, as you said, just think a large system of doctors and hospitals. Um, And Medicare, which of course is for the elderly, has been really pushing that model. And um, more than half, I'm I'm pretty sure, more than half uh, of the AC, of the Accountable Care Organization's under Medicare have been uh, hitting quality and saving metrics in the first couple years of that program. So, of course, that also means you have a lot who are not hitting the metrics, but it's at least a model that is emerging. So what we did was basically kind of mix the two. We'll take the budgeting predictability of the managed care model, we'll still sign up contracts with some insurance companies, but we'll also let these doctor and hospital systems compete um, and what will be really interesting is to see, you know, a couple. It'll take a couple of years to get all this set up, get federal approval, blah blah blah. But how it shakes out um, once we get there. How have other states done this mixture before, or is it just one of the? From what I can tell, very few. Um, one of the experts I talked to said that he thinks Oregon has a, a somewhat similar system. But um, I have not heard of that many doing the mixture. Like, so some have tried. Florida, for example, did uh, an option that had something that are kind of like uh, these doctor and hospital systems. Um, I'm not sure where that one stands now. But for the most part, when you talk about Medicaid in states, it's the sort of old school managed care model, which is basically insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Now, the these companies are going to be, or these systems are going to be responsible. They're going to be managing these, these programs. If they go over budget, it's their fault. They're held accountable. 
something goes off in my head in the editing process. I'm thinking, <laughs> well, is that really going to happen? Is the state going to bail them out or are they just going to come back with uh, higher prices the next year? I mean, what, what <laughs> is it that simple where they're, they're not just going to eat it? I have a hard, hard time believing that. It's a really good question. Um, so from what I've heard in other states, we, we can kind of do that for mm-hmm. now since I think the regulations aren't totally finalized on how this will work in North Carolina. In other states, in any given year, if you win that contract, yeah, you bite it. I mean, if you go over, you really are on the hook. But what will happen or what has happened in some other states is, okay, then the next year that insurance company comes back to the state and says, uh, the budget we were given is unrealistic. We would like a rate increase. Mm-hmm. Um, so in theory, that could happen in North Carolina as well. So in any given year, you're protected. But um, in theory, you're not protected from costs rising in the long term. Do you have a question you want to say? Each chime in. No, I'm I'm just trying to digest <laughs> to, to yeah. digest all of this, Greg. In some ways, it sounds like uh, set up similar to the um, regulatory process for u- utility companies. For example, the rates are set. Then the next year, Duke or whoever comes back and and requests a rate increase. They need more money to do this or that, and and. It's yeah. It's it's one of those things where um, you know the those estimates, those budgets, which you know you'll have the state will have to probably hire new actuaries to to handle all this. And the behind the scenes piece of this is going to be so incredibly important because um, if you just set arbitrarily low budgets, no one's going to win in that because no one's going to want to compete for these budgets because it's not going to be enough to handle care and what's already a, a pretty lean program. You know, mm-hmm. Medicaid tends to be one of the lower reimbursing programs. Um, so it, it's going to be a very big deal to see um, how the state goes about setting these budgets you know, when the time comes. Now, why would hospital systems want to manage the program like this? I mean, they're, they're, they're busy enough providing services. What's it, why would they want to get into this part, part of uh, health care? Two reasons. First of all, they see themselves as already basically biting the bullet on a lot of these patients anyway, because think about all of the uncompensated care they have to do. They can't turn people away, and Medicaid reimburses somewhat low, so they're already having to basically put more in than they're getting back in payment with a lot of these patients anyway. Second thing, and this is where it fits into just trends in healthcare nationally, they're already moving in this direction. You have more and more hospital systems that are kind of becoming like insurance companies. And the reason is we're setting up these models, the Medicare Accountable Care Organization model is an example, where um, we're trying to better tie incentives to how you're getting paid. Because our old model in American healthcare is you get paid after you provide services. So, of course, the incentive there is, all right, well, let's, let's provide some more services. Um, we have these changes happening, some of which the federal government is driving, some of which states are driving, some of which uh, private insurers like Blue Cross are driving, mm-hmm. where you are trying to tie these incentives to how much money you're getting paid. Um, so all of these reasons combined to put hospitals and doctors in places where they're already kind of heading that way. And I've had some um, hospital executives tell me, we don't want, we have a foot in two boats right now. It'd be a lot easier if this will all shake out just towards one payment model or the other. It's tough to figure out exactly how we're getting paid and what our model is when we've got these two models with two different incentives sort of pushing and pulling on us. What is the uh, unanswered question in this, in this new system? What, what are the questions you have? Uh, a big one is the one you had, which is, you know, are, are they really going to be mm-hmm. on the hook? Is the state actually going to have to bail some of these people out? Um, another one, all of the patient advocates I talk to 
really everyone I talked to, but especially them, said the quality metrics that the state comes up with are going to be so incredibly important here. Because the old knock on the insurance company model is that, okay, you've got that set budget, your incentive is to cut services, you're going to just cut services. So the state has said in its overhaul, it's going to, to tie quality metrics to these contracts to make sure patients just aren't getting their stuff cut so that someone can make a bigger profit. So what those quality metrics are, um, how effectively they'll be measured, what the penalty will be for not meeting those, th those will be the most important things probably from a patient's perspective because it's both what's happening to you as you go through the system and it's how are we as a state making people healthier. I have a question. You quoted somebody in a couple of your stories talking about the Frankenstein's yeah. baby. Are, are those the two different payment models? That, 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 who was that, and, and what were they talking yeah, about? Yeah, so that was... Um, that stuck out to and, me. And I try to... When I'm doing these these kind of wonky stories, I try to always have some stuff in there that makes it more interesting. So we had like a Pac-Man analogy and a Frankenstein's <laughs> oh, monster that analogy. Too, yeah. um, and the Frankenstein one, that was not... I can't take credit for that. was this, this Wake Forest professor, Mark Hall, okay. who's been studying um, the reform process in North Carolina, the overhaul process. And um, is just brilliant on it. He was this really helpful source that I talked to. And he wrote this paper earlier kind of framing it as if you take this sort of insurance company model and this doctor and hospital model, if you combine it, would that create a Frankenstein's monster? That's the way that he, he <laughs> framed it. Um, and it was basically a rhetorical flourish. I mean, he actually thinks that, no, it's North Carolina is going about this in a, in a sound way of kind of picking the best parts of both models. But... Um, I think that we don't have a, a lot of evidence from other states as of right now on like exactly how well these two things will work together. So our, our patient advocates basically in a, well, it sounds good. Let's wait and see, though. I mean, a little not, not convinced or cautiously optimistic. Is that, what, how would you describe know. that? I'd say it's just like they're so used to, you know, lawmakers wanting to get budgets in better shape. And I mean, this has been a trend in Medicaid forever and in lots of states. So I think that they're just kind of always in this sort of um, like vigilant state. Like, I don't know if I would even say like cautiously optimistic. Let me put it this way. They say that this model in theory can work really well. Mm -hmm. It's going to just come down to these quality metrics and these other details. All right. What other things going on? What else are y'all going to be working on next uh, next week or so? Uh, another fun healthcare thing coming up is um, a, a story that actually an old colleague of ours, Scott Graff, did really well. This was back in, I think, 2010. Um, Lowe's Home Improvement Company has been sort of on the front lines of uh, uh, creating, using another new healthcare model to uh, give free surgeries to mm -hmm. some employees. So it started with free heart surgeries. Now it's free hips and knees, and we're gonna, we, we've been working on a story about why they're doing that, how it's working now that they've got several years of evidence for, for how this is working. Um, so that's a story that in the coming weeks will be fun. Yeah. Duncan? As far as I know, I'm doing newscasts. Yes, you week, are. So I, I don't know that you'll hear any <laughs> well, features But you from come me, up but... with story ideas. Is there anything that we, I, I don't know about yet? Or you, Sometimes, hey, I've, oh, I've man, had to take you off. on the spot. I know. <laughs> but I've had to take you I, I off newscasts, though, at times to uh, put you on stories, too. So maybe I ought to be telling you what you're doing. <laughs> well, you know, that, it's something that I sent an email out about that I had forgotten about until now. You, When you were out of town a couple of weeks ago, Richard Burr introduced this bill um, uh, about the radar system in Charlotte. D did you see that? I remember it, but I can't say I remember. I Basically, Charlotte is the only city of 700,000 or more people that doesn't have a National Weather Service Doppler yes. radar okay. within like 50 miles of, of the center of town. We, uh, we rely on, I think, either Raleigh or Greenville, South Carolina. Right. And Why so is that? It, 
that's what I'd like to do a story yeah. about, find out why that is. The bill seems to target just Charlotte because we're the only city that, that fits that criteria right now. I think there's a place in, in Ohio that also might mm-hmm. might be eligible under this, but uh, it's interesting. And Does it matter? If that, I mean, if the, if the others are getting the job done or are we getting... That's, I guess that's a question I have. I think we need to talk to some meteorologists yeah. about that. But there was a case where there was a tornado at like 2 o'clock in the morning uh, on a weekend at, at a few years ago. And people didn't know about it because the meteorologists couldn't see the rotation on the radar huh. that huh. we were getting. So it, it could be that that there is a safety component to this in certain circumstances. Right. So, well, yes, that's a story that I'd like to do. Do the story. I'm, okay. I'm assigning you that story, okay? <laughs> right, this, is, right. this is how our newsroom operates. We're, we're giving our, our listeners a peek into, into, into I'm glad I remembered it. I was really on the spot here. <laughs> I was gonna, actually, I had a question circling back to the piano thing. Like, right. With your years of playing, was it... Did you feel like you were stepping into history somewhat when you were like, playing that piano? I tried not to think about it too much because I can be a nervous person anyway, and I, I didn't want to be too nervous playing this. But yes, I, I, preparing to do the show, I was looking at all these videos of Horowitz playing this piano in the White House or when he wow. took it to Moscow in 1986, the first time he had been back to Russia since he left and, and became an American citizen in the 1920s. The people were crying in the audience, and, and this is the piano uh, that he was playing on. So yeah, you do have that sense of, of history. And, and I remember playing... Uh, something just the opening notes of this piano concerto that Horowitz was really known for playing, uh, just a very simple like octave melody, and sitting there and thinking, this is close to what it sounded like when he would have been on stage with an orchestra, just playing these simple notes. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> what yeah, a neat a, experience. Yeah, yeah it seriously. was it really cool. It was one of those really cool moments in this job where you get uh, one of your avocations coming together with with your work and it's just it was a whole lot of fun and i appreciate the opportunity to do it and looking forward to seeing how the show comes out on monday great all right well so am i <laughs> I've, I've, heard, I've heard nothing but good things uh good. and I've, uh, I've i've heard bits and pieces but well I've, greg I've, if i can keep your interest for the whole hour in something <laughs> about classical piano i think i will have done my job <laughs> huge win yeah oh i don't think that's i i think i've surprised you on classical music i have a little bit Probably, probably, but but I tried not to get too far into the weeds so that as many people could enjoy it as possible. All right, guys. uh, Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.